Welcome to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast, brought to you by DonorSearch, the show that takes you inside the lives of thought leaders, innovators, and changemakers in fundraising, philanthropy, and civil society. I'm your host, Jay Frost. Today's guest is Amy Eisenstein, CEO and co-founder of the Capital Campaign Toolkit, and one of the leading voices in the field of fundraising. Amy is an AFP certified master trainer, former president of the board of AFP New Jersey, and one of the few ACFRE designation holders in the profession. Her books include Major Gift Fundraising for Small Shops, Raising More with Less, and 50 Asks in 50 Weeks. In our conversation, Amy gives us a window into her highly innovative approach to the campaign feasibility study, showing how she guides nonprofit leaders to greater success. We can start, we can start, we can edit it anywhere, but yeah, let me just ask you, where where are you from? Well, uh, I was born in Ann Arbor, Michigan, and occasionally people think they hear some Michigan uh, accent coming out, but I spent the vast majority of my childhood in Bethesda, Maryland, which is right outside of D.C., and then I came up to New Jersey for college, and I basically never left. So why Ann Arbor? Were your parents at the university or something or what? Uh, My mother was a resident at the uh, university hospital there training. uh, And she's a a pediatric physiatrist or she was. She's retired now. But yes. So I was there at the hospital in utero and for the first two years of my life. (laughs) Yes. So not a lot of Ann Arbor memories, but but there must be a lot from going down to the Baltimore area. What what was that like? Yeah. Yeah, it was great. Growing up right outside of D.C. is a fascinating place. I was inside the Washington Beltway, as they say. So I grew up going to protests and taking field trips to the Washington Monument and the White House. And it was a a really interesting place to grow up. Yeah, Bethesda is a great town. Um, Yeah. So when you say field trips, you mean to things like what we call the Dinosaur Museum. I guess, right? <laughs> yes, American History and the Air and Space Museum and all of the Smithsonian's on the National Mall. So sure. uh, it was great. Yeah, great place to grow up. Really interesting. How did you decide to go to, uh, to New Jersey for school? Yeah, so uh, I, I wound up at Rutgers. I don't know, you know, what goes through an 18-year-old's mind, a 17, 18-year-old's mind. I applied to lots of colleges in the area. And when I landed at the Rutgers campus, actually uh, Douglas College, which is part of Rutgers University, is, is, was the all-women's campus at Rutgers mm-hmm. for many, many years. And I just fell in love with it. And it seemed like the right distance from home. I could take the Amtrak right from Washington to New Jersey. And uh, I had a great, great undergraduate experience at Rutgers. And you were studying things that related to work that you did later, it looks like. Um, What was your, I'm trying to remember your degree program, but um, I know labor was a piece of it, policy and labor, right? Yeah, yes. Political science and labor studies were my double majors at Rutgers. And I lived in a place, instead of a sorority, I lived in a place called the Community Service House. So if you want to take that to how I got into raising, it started probably earlier than college. But uh, so that was a great, a great community for me of all service-minded, like-minded people in college I surrounded myself with. 
Yeah, well, and, and but you you provided the right, the perfect response there in that this probably started for you even before that or else you wouldn't have chosen a place like that um, to make your way in the world. So uh, did you have early experience with philanthropy or uh, working with community organizations when you were back in the Bethesda area? Yeah, absolutely. I think both between high school service clubs and volunteering, my parents were active volunteers. And so I was at soup kitchens with my mom throughout high school and maybe even middle school. And I just, I had a sense that I wanted to help people when I grew up. I didn't know what that would look like, maybe, but um, definitely led me to this career. Yeah, it's rare that people talk about their first experiences with this, but it, it's usually so important, whether it's with a family or some volunteer job they took. Do you remember kind of one of the earliest experiences you have with doing something like that? Well, I have very clear memories of going to serve in a soup kitchen with my mom throughout high school. We did it on a somewhat regular basis, and I think it really opened my eyes to the needs of different people and different communities and how important it was to serve others and give back. And I guess I've carried that throughout my life. So back at Rutgers, again, you were studying this work in poli-sci and so forth, and that seemed to feed into the career that you had. Um, because you, between there and when you went to graduate school, um, you were already working in development. You had a director of development position. How did you how did you find that? And, and but it was right. a very serious work. Can you talk about that? Yeah. So actually, there was one job in between uh, college and the start of my fundraising. I worked at a place for adults with developmental disabilities. So I was in a nonprofit doing program work. Mm -hmm. And at night, I was at NYU getting a master's in public administration and nonprofit management. And then I decided in the middle of graduate school that I really, if I wanted to be serious about nonprofits, that I needed to learn fundraising. So I kind of thought of my first fundraising job, sort of like I thought of graduate school, like I need to learn this so that I can go manage a nonprofit well, mm -hmm. so that I know the skills of fundraising. And I got a job, fortunately, in a, a domestic violence shelter in northern New Jersey and commuted this crazy commute from NYU uh, to, to Bergen County, New Jersey. If anybody knows the geography, it was a little nuts, but it was the best thing that I could have done because, of course, I fell in love with fundraising, and I've been doing it ever since. Yeah. Um, that work must have been uh, emotionally rewarding but also draining. I mean, that's, that's very serious work. And when you're on the fundraising side of that, you must have been interacting with donors, talking to them about the work, but doing it in a way that's very protective of the identities, the people you serve. What was that experience like for a person who, at that point, is still very new to the field, but you're dealing with very, very serious issues affecting people in a deeply personal way? Well, I think, fortunately, I had the most amazing boss who really nurtured my fundraising career. She didn't have that much fundraising experience, although she had been running this shelter for a long, long time and doing very well with grant writing and other uh, fundraising. But she knew she really needed to expand and she invested. She sent me to my first AFP meeting, the Association of Fundraising Professionals, and 
supported me going to those meetings every month and really encouraged me to learn as much as I could. And we grew together and it was so amazing to have such a supportive boss like that. Um, and, and of course, working in these very, very challenging environments where every day was almost a life and death emergency of some of these women and kids. So the work we were doing was absolutely critical. Do you remember meeting with donors even at that uh, early stage and what that was like, what you took from that? Yeah, I mean, many of them, of course, had their own stories whether it was themselves or their mothers or their sisters or somebody very close to them in their lives that had personal experience with domestic violence. So I think that you know, one of the lessons was that whatever the issue is, a donor has to, if, if, if it's close to home, a donor is gonna feel more passionate and committed to it. And of course, with a, with a challenging subject like domestic violence, it's very personal and it's not something people necessarily want to talk about. And so it is delicate and challenging and important all at the same time. Yeah, giving people space to um, explore how they feel about that must be particularly challenging too. And I know one of the things you're going to be talking about as you do a webinar and a webcast um, with donor search has to do with campaigns and, and campaigns you know this uh, much better than I do, but I know you, you'll you explore these issues with people. But these are the kinds of issues that you wouldn't even know to explore, first of all. And then mm -hmm. secondly, you'd have to do so, it, it would have to be at their, they would have to reveal it themselves in order for you to be able to help them to talk about it. So I can imagine that must have been very challenging because you, it's not as if you can look up a list of the people who have experienced <laughs> domestic violence and call them up and talk to them about giving. It's very different from that. Um, how, when you're thinking about how you learned this superstructure of development programs that you've been able to apply all these years that we'll talk about later, um, how were you able to kind of build that structure even in that environment where you needed to organize development activity around something where you could, it would be very difficult to talk about openly? Yeah, so I think that, you know, that was my first experience at an organization where you say there's no natural constituency, right? So the hospital has grateful patients, a university or school has alumni. And so some nonprofit organizations and, and causes have natural constituents. And of course, others don't. And so it was really critical to talk to the people who volunteered, the people who were on the board, the people who already supported the cause to find out who they knew, who they would be willing to speak with. And sometimes they were and sometimes they weren't. And it was just important to be respectful of, of that. Um, it, was, it was a great first fundraising experience for me. And, and from there, I know you went back to your alma mater. Is that right? So what? I did. What was? How did you decide to go there? They must have been really happy to have you back. But how did you make that transition? <laughs> well, uh, when I decided that I was leaving, you know, uh, as as probably all of your listeners can relate to, if they've been in a one person or small development shop. Uh, it can be very isolating, mm -hmm. and there's a limit to how much you can do and how much you can learn being by yourself. And so I made a very conscientious decision as I was finishing graduate school that 
if I wanted to go on to sort of bigger fundraising, that I needed to be in a bigger shop. Mm-hmm. And so I did go back to to work at Douglas as part of Rutgers. And I did, uh, that was my first big capital campaign experience. And I spent my months and years flying all over the country, visiting alumni uh, from Douglas and learning how to do bigger major gift asks, more planned giving. I had a lot of colleagues. They assigned me a mentor in a different department. Uh, it was, it was an amazing opportunity. So I encourage people to think about if you've been in a one person shop and, and actually vice versa. I think that if you've only had big shop experience where you have researchers and administrative support and all sorts of other great things that we associate with big shop fundraising, you know, go see what it's like to be in a one-person shop. <laughs> um, it's a very different kind of fundraising. Uh, and, well, and then you have that additional dimension because you said that Douglas was an all-women's college at the time when you were there. I don't know if it is still today. I'm sorry, I should know better. But are no, they still? No. Well, yes and no. Mostly no. Um, it's a women's campus with some women's programs, but it has, I think, mostly been integrated. You know, there may be some women's only programs and a few women's only dorms, but I think I think uh, it's mostly integrated to the yeah. bigger university at this point. Yeah. But, and the reason I ask you about that is because I know that uh, many of the schools that were focused on, especially single gender schools, but particularly women's colleges, uh, that they, uh, some of them went through this transition, which was really fraught. Um, women uh, who were graduates of the alumni uh, had this deep affinity, affinity and affiliation with these schools. So I, I don't know where they were on the trajectory as you were there, but that discussion must have been an interesting one, too. What was that like to be an alum talking to other alums, but kind of in the back of people's minds, at least, that times might be changing? It was not in the back of people's minds. It was very much at the forefront of the discussion. And, you know, when I was a student, most of the classes honestly were co-ed at that point, even though it was still considered a women's college and there were many more. It was exclusively a women's campus and women's dorms and women's programs. But classes were integrated with the greater Rutgers community. And so it had been a long time coming. And, um, you know, there were some people who were in favor of the change. And, of course, many, many who didn't were very resistant to the change. And it's complicated. Um, I think there's pros and cons to it, of course. I'm going to be diplomatic about it and say it that way. Oh, sure. You know, that there's there are reasons to to change. And then there are really important aspects of keeping certain things all women. Right. No, absolutely. Uh, I guess uh, what I was wondering is what that experience must have been like for you in just living through the middle of the change in a sense for <laughs> uh, and, and being the advocate ambassador for the school as it as it navigated that. It, there must have been a lot yeah. of emotion in each meeting in a capital campaign about that. Issue. Yeah, I think there was there was a lot of sort of tug and, you know, how much to be nostalgic with some of the older alum and highlight the aspects of what was still there that they remembered fondly versus really uh, focusing on what the current changes and what the current student experience was. And so I think that, you know, 
while being open and honest with all alumni, but also really highlighting things that they that they felt good and warm about. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we did struggle with that a lot. There were lots of meetings and discussions about what to focus on and what programs to highlight and what was still happening that would make older alumni feel warm and reminiscent and uh, nostalgic and connected versus some of the younger, newer alumni who had a closer affiliation with the university at large. You know, where did their loyalties lie? So I don't know if I answered the question. It was a struggle. It was a struggle, and well, we thought about it a lot. And that's not really unique to a situation like that, is it? Because in every every kind of situation you've worked in, either on the staff or as counsel, I'm sure there was a friction between an idea about what a place either has been or should be together with some of the changes that you're introducing, supported by some but not by others. So yeah, navigating that sure. must be tough. Yeah, Absolutely. And I think that, you know, that is sometimes the epitome of a capital campaign, that change and growth. And some people are all for it and zooming to the future and other people are nostalgic and fond of what was happening. And so, you know, where do you meet in the middle and what's appropriate for the organization at that point in time? And how do you bring people along? Um, I think that those are questions that, yeah, I think you're exactly right. Every organization wrestles with to some degree or another. Yeah, but it must be an opportunity, too, because with each of those cases, maybe sometimes we haven't had a chance to talk to those people very much. So I can imagine those must have been really, again, going back to Douglas, must have been pretty profound conversations and sense if people are giving people an opportunity to express themselves and say how they feel. Yeah. Yeah, some of the changes, you know, were very positive, of course. There were many more students of color uh, as we opened things up and many more opportunities. And so those were really positive changes that we could focus on and bring people's attention to and important changes to make. Well, and speaking of those kinds of changes, that's, I guess, where you went next was following that that social justice lens, which is, you've been... Uh, very humble about, but it does seem to be kind of a through line, the choices you made academically and then in terms of your career. So um, uh, where do you go next and, and what? why did you go there and what kind of work did you do uh, there? Yeah, so after we finished the capital campaign at, at Douglas, at Rutgers, I decided actually that I had had my big shop experience and I wanted to go back to a small shop. Mm-hmm. And my next stop on the journey was at the New Jersey Institute for Social Justice in Newark, New Jersey. And I was their first ever development director. The organization had been around for several years, but the program managers had been writing grants for each program that they were doing. So I got to come in and design a development department and program from scratch, which was an amazing opportunity. Also, they had a founder of the organization who had funded it for the first few years, and it had grown so rapidly that they actually needed to fundraise, which was an interesting and challenging transition because the board members had been recruited with the understanding that the founder was funding it and that they did not have to give or fundraise. And so (laughs) you can imagine there was a big transition that was happening, even in the decision to hire me or someone like me Mm -hmm. to start sort of acknowledging that they had grown so quickly 
and so um, grown so much that they had outgrown this founder's initial funding that honestly, I think he had thought was enough to fund the organization for a while. And five or six years later, it wasn't. I'm I'm trying to imagine the board that uh, was originally brought on, not thinking that they would be necessarily the major contributors or moving to fundraise, then also greenlighting their first development director who would come in and help them to change. That must have been something right there. So you, you must have been navigating kind of a work with the board with the founder and people close to the founder and with new donors, um, as well as building the program. It was, it must've been a combination of getting things done, but also, um, (laughs) being a counselor to everybody. I mean, in the most personal sense. Yeah, it was, it was fascinating. And the good news is that the board, even though they didn't necessarily want to or know how to fundraise Mm -hmm. as many boards don't or are, uh, they really understood the, how important the work was that they were doing and that they were supporting. And they understood that, you know, growing it was critical. And they recognized that the way to do that was to re- start raising serious money. And they were, for the most part, very supportive. It was actually the best board I've ever worked with. They were phenomenal. Wow. Well, I hope they're listening because that. Yeah. That says a lot. You've worked with a lot of boards. So <laughs> um, what what made them the best board you've worked with? Well, I think the, the founder, you know, first of all, he was a well-respected, well-known person in North Jersey who had always been very active in social justice issues and really recruited an all-star board now you know, whether these people would have come on initially if they had been told that fundraising was an initial part of the responsibility. It's hard to say, but they were very well established, connected, you know, networked. Um, and just they they got on board once they realized, you know, what would happen if they didn't fundraise or what the potential was if they did. And, you know, it took a couple of years to make the transition, but um, it was just the most passionate board, the most committed, uh, the most influential. And it was, it was just a fun, fun project. Yeah. Um, but you, in choosing to go there, you said it was time to move from the big to a small organization to run the shop, but there are a lot of organizations out there. You chose that. Why? Why did you choose to go to an organization like that? What's the passion point for you in that kind of work? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think that social justice and social service agencies have always been a really important part of my, I I don't know. It's just something that I'm passionate about and having the opportunity. I, you know, honestly, oh my gosh, it was more than 15 years ago, Jay. I don't even remember why I picked them. Maybe, maybe they're the only people that offered me a job. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I doubt that. (laughs) I really don't remember um, how I landed there. You know, I'm sure I applied to certain organizations whose missions would, would be a match with mine, but I, I definitely made a decision to go back to a small shop. Um, I felt like I had gotten my big shop experience. Not that you can ever have enough of that, but I felt like at a small shop, you can really make a difference. And so that was an important thing for me to do, an important part of the journey. 
Well, and I know that you've been able to work with lots of different kinds of organizations since. Um, you, I guess you hung out your shingle officially right after that. Isn't that right? So yes. this is back to, is it 2008? Is that when you... Eight, 2008, right okay. after everything crashed, right? And everybody right. told me this was the worst time to open a fundraising firm uh, because the world was coming to an end mm -hmm. as, uh, as we thought it was, I guess. And um, I said, it's the best time to open a fundraising firm because everybody needs help with fundraising. And, you know, to some extent, unfortunately, that was true. Everybody was desperate for fundraising organizations that had, you know, relied on a few funders or had primarily government funding suddenly found themselves in difficult situations where they really needed to diversify their funding pools and um, work you know, I was happy to help. I was happy to be able to be in an opportunity, uh, in a position to help them at that time. And I, I think, you know, having worked in big shops and small shops gave me a really interesting and somewhat unique set of experiences to be able to say, I've been in your shoes as a one person development shop mm -hmm. and I understand how big fundraising works. So, uh, it actually was, was a nice combination of experience. I wanted to ask you about that because uh, the, you know, the thing we hear so much in this field are, uh, you know, we're not Harvard, that kind of response that the big, the small places can't do what the big places do. And I, I, I have to admit, I'm a little skeptical when I hear that, because I imagine that if they have somebody working with them like yourself, who can help them to identify the, the tools, the processes, the, the messages that are going to be most effective for them, that they can be their own little Harvard too. Um, but, but maybe that's a bias on my part. Were you able to take both the big and the small experience uh, as well as the tools and the processes from those environments and then bring them to these clients who were struggling, especially in 2008 and beyond? Yeah, I mean, I think to, I would like to think to a large extent. I mean, to some extent, yes. I think there's lots of factors that go into the success or the struggle of any development shop, regardless mm -hmm. of the size. And one of the factors is who's in the organization's orbit, who's in your donor database. I mean, you know, there are some organizations that have people in, you know, with more resources that are giving to them, whether it's because of the cause or because of the geography or, you know, there's lots of factors that go into that. So you know, it's you're starting with a certain pool or group of donors and sometimes you have better opportunities and sometimes it's more challenging. I think another issue is who's on the board and how willing are they to help? Um, and so I, I think the third factor is bravery, honestly, on the part of a development director. You know, how sort of fearless and brave are you in, in terms of really willing, being willing to pound the pavement? Because mm. fundraising at the end of the day is about follow up and follow through and repetition and um, being willing to accept no and being able to get up the next day and do it all over again and not letting some of the, um, you know, the mundane tasks and the ultimate, the, the everyday fires that ultimately happen in nonprofits get in the way of really building relationships with donors. So there's a lot of factors at play. 
And uh, I've seen some really, really successful small shops and development directors who do amazing things with limited resources and limited donor bases and less participatory boards. And, um, and, and then I've seen others who really um, are, get stuck in their own, in their own way, yeah. right. And can't get out of their own way and, and don't, don't fundraise as much as I think they could be. Um, if they really were, were brave, I think it comes down to bravery. I don't know. Yeah. I, and this is another one of those intangibles that people talk about a lot about bravery and fearlessness and whether or not that kind of thing is native to the person that you're hiring. Are you looking for a person who's fearless or, or has, or has demonstrated it in a job and you, you took jobs where you probably had demonstrated a lot already, but had not necessarily demonstrated in that environment before, but people brought you in and you did the job. So what, when it comes to something like bravery and this fearlessness, do, do they, does someone who's going to be effective have to already have that innately, or is that something that you work with people to build? Can we find it in each potential development mm. officer? Yeah, I think probably a little bit of both. I sometimes use the analogy of learning to swim, right? Or asking somebody on a first date. I mean, you know, these are all things we've learned to do. Learn to swim, learn to ride a bike. It's terrifying until you do it a few times, until mm -hmm. you to learn to do it. So the first few times of asking for a major gift is going to be terrifying. And the question is, do you have the inside, you know, whatever it is. And, and sometimes it is coachable, right? For sure. I've worked with many development directors who have never done it before. And if you give them the language and the, the tools and the resources, but mostly the language and practice and role play, then they're able to, once they've done it two or three times, I mean, it's always scary, but it does get so much easier, right? There's nothing like asking the person out on the first date. That's the most terrifying. And then it's not so bad. Um, even if they say no, you're like, okay, it didn't kill me, right? You <laughs> learn that it didn't kill you, that it didn't kill right. you. You're still standing there to see another day um, and that you can keep going. So I, I think I think fundraising is very much like learning any new skill. Yeah, I often like to ask people, what's the worst experience they've ever had? Not because we're trying to scare people, but because it often isn't that bad at all. So, right. I mean, what's what's the worst experience you've ever had when you're going out and asking somebody for support? I mean, you know, of course, nobody likes to get no. Um, and so I have I had a worst experience. No, I have to say, I can't think of one. You know, have I ever offended someone so badly that they never talked to me or gave to the organization again? No, they may have said, you know what, Amy, you didn't, you know, it really was not the best way to ask. And I had to sort of scrape myself up off the floor, but I can't think of the worst. Nothing stands out that was so, so bad, fortunately. But I tell this to development directors all the time, you know, you're not going to do any significant damage. And honestly, mm. you can preface your asks. And I coach people to do this saying, listen, this is sort of new to me, but the organization is so important that I want to ask you for su your support. And if I do it in a way that's awkward or uncomfortable, you know, 
please forgive me in advance or feel free to tell me and let's just have a conversation, right? Because this organization or this cause is so important that, and we have big needs and, and I'm looking for people to help a partner with, right. right? And so by giving people language and teaching them the tools, people can do this. Um, it's like running after your kid and saying, pedal, 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 when you're teaching them to ride a bike, right? Just do it. You have to get up on it and do it. And uh, and then it gets better. <laughs> I'm laughing because I don't ride a bike. And my son started riding one when he was like two. And oh going down a driveway we had that was over 200 feet long and, and you know, <laughs> speeding around. And so some right. some of us uh, always have a fear of certain things. But um, yeah. But, but yeah, like you're saying, the experience usually gets us over it but are there are there things that still give you pause so what's the hardest thing for you at this point in your career when you're structuring a campaign working with a client a board asking for support what's what's still challenging well i think you know whenever we are recommending a campaign or a really big goal uh, to an organization Although we've done our due diligence, we've done research, we've mitigated the risks mm -hmm. by doing an analysis, there's always this sort of like, oh my gosh, can they do it, right? But I, I want to set visions really big. That's what capital campaigns are all about. They're about getting an organization to the next level of service, to really catapulting them to higher levels of service and fundraising. And so there's always this, you know, take a breath kind of moment, like, oh my gosh, I am going to recommend a number that is so big uh, that some of the people, you know, it knocks the wind out of you, takes your breath away. And it's two to three years before you sort of know if they're successful or not. So it's not like there's a quick answer or, you know, you sure. just know, but um, so every capital campaign that we embark on, um, you know, we have a very collaborative process. So it's not like we're giving a number to an organization. I don't want to, you know, anybody to take away that um, we're working very much hand in hand with the organizational leaders to come up with the appropriate number. But, you know, once you've sort of settled on that initial number and go out and make those first few asks, so you hold your breath, right? <laughs> no matter how many times you've done it before. Right, right. And I guess if you're talking to the board and getting to accept the recommendation, again, collaborative recommendation, it's more than asking for a date at this point. It's like asking for a long-term relationship because as you that's said, it's right. campaign lasts a while. Um, yeah. So when you, that, that's kind of the thing that still gives you pause, but it sounds like a good pause, maybe like going on stage or something. Um, you know, you, you know, the script and you know, the play and you know, the characters, but it's still, you're still going out there. But um, what's the biggest opportunity yet? Because now that you've been doing this for a number of years with your firm and um, with another capital campaign practice with the toolkit, what, what's the big opportunity that you look for? Uh, to, to help in ways maybe that you haven't had the opportunity to do before? Some of those, you know, aspirational pieces. Well, I'm super, super excited by this current chapter of my life, which is uh, serving as co-founder and CEO of the Capital Campaign Toolkit. It is a total dream come true because we are providing 
campaign services in a totally, you, I, I'm going to go so far as to say unique, but different way than most other campaign consultants are offering services. And so we are having the opportunity to influence and impact and guide and teach and serve uh, hundreds of organizations at a time that are going through campaigns. And so um, it's just a really exciting next chapter for me personally, but also to see so many organizations take this huge leap in terms of service and ability and progress is the most exciting thing I've done in my career, honestly. And what, what makes this approach so different for you? I mean, how are you trying to bring a new lens to something that has been done so frequently, but still seems so challenging for so many? Yeah, so there's a few things that we're doing, I think, very differently from the vast majority of campaign firms. One is we, when we do a feasibility study, which is a, a campaign readiness study with an organization, the traditional model is that campaign consultants go out and interview the top potential donors for the organization and then make recommendations. And it's all done confidential, confidential, oh my gosh, confidentially and anonymously. I was trying to say those two words together <laughs> and it wasn't working. Um, at the Capital Campaign Toolkit, we have a totally different philosophy about how feasibility studies should be run. And that is that the organizational leaders themselves actually do the interviews mm. with their biggest and best potential donors. And we guide them through the process and hold their hands, prepare them for the interviews, help I do all the things that need to be doing around the interviews. The key difference is that the organizational leaders themselves are doing the interviews. Right. And the benefit, the big benefit of that is that they are building those relationships and getting direct feedback from their potential donors prior to a campaign and um, they really what they're doing is teeing up the asks. They're building the relationships prior to asking for those big gifts and getting all that vital information uh, directly. So it's really um, a totally innovative model and really changing the way things happen in our sector. And um, to me, it's it's one of the most important things, contributions that we've made to the to the sector, to the community, is by creating this model. We call it a guided feasibility study because we're guiding nonprofit leaders and supporting them through the process. But it's a really big change in the way that it's been done traditionally. It sounds like it must accelerate the process too, because if you're if either they guided by you or you with them go into a room and they have the conversation, the relationship is theoretically closer, but it's also a little farther ahead. So does that bring them closer to the goal faster, which seems to be always the complaint with these campaigns, like you said before, yeah. two to three years, it's going to take forever. I don't know if I can do it. I can't hold my breath right. that long underwater. What, it doesn't well, help. Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing is we really teach people that they're not asking for a gift when they go in to do these exploratory conversations. But I have to tell you, uh, not quite half the time, but frequently um, there is a gift offered and the gifts are accelerated. 
Um, that is not the goal. That's not the purpose, but it is a byproduct. And it's super interesting to watch that people come out of these feasibility studies and go, oh my gosh, we've raised, you know, 40% of what we thought we needed. And now we can raise the goal because we've got all these early commitments that we didn't even ask for. Um, and it really is bringing the leaders closer to the donors mm -hmm. in a very profound and important way. And going back to our earlier discussion, it's giving them the confidence and bravery because they're not going to ask for a gift. They're really going to ask for advice and feedback and to discuss the project in a meaningful and thoughtful way. Right. And what they come out with is bravery and confidence. And it's exciting to see uh, so that they can go into a campaign so much braver uh, than when they started by right. going through this guided feasibility process. Yeah, it must be modeling the behavior for their peers, too, which is um, pretty, pretty extraordinary. Um, and so this is one of the big challenges with all this, because no matter how how successful a model is that you've developed or any of the work that you and other people in the field have done, there's still always this concern, especially as we come closer to maybe a different phase with the pandemic, hopefully out of it, um, or that we come through another thing like we all experienced in 2008, and and also with um, with all the things we've discussed and, and talked about with politics and racial justice over the last couple of years, people think, well, maybe now is a difficult time to do whatever, especially mm -hmm. a capital campaign. So as you look ahead and you imagine um, some of the challenges that may be on the other side of some of these things we've been living through together, what do you think that this is the time that people can recommit themselves to not just raising more money, but more goodwill for their organizations to, to raising a tide that lifts all boats. Is this a good time to do the work that you're helping people to do? I mean, I think absolutely. Yes. I'm totally biased, but I also have some data behind me and, you know, we have seen organizations do extraordinary things over the last two years and I don't have any reason to believe that that's going to slow down in the near future. And so, you know, it's the organizations that really put the brakes on not only campaigns, but all sorts of fundraising efforts that we saw take a hit. And, you know, it makes sense. Both, both having that fear and saying, oh, this isn't a good time to fundraise. But I have to tell you, I, I spent the first six months or eight months of the pandemic saying, don't stop talking to your donors. Keep communicating. Ask for gifts. It is a good time. And there were so many um, organizational leaders, both volunteers and professionals, who sort of felt it wasn't a good time. Um, but those that persisted and persevered and pivoted, that uh, word that we don't want to say anymore, um, but really did a good job at communicating their needs and their ongoing needs and um services with their donors, they're in a really good position. And I think there's no better time to think about a capital campaign than right now. Well, that's that's going to be encouraging for a lot of people to hear because the fear grows as change occurs. Um, now, and now the thing is that the reality of much of this is that when you appear, as you do, um, on podcasts and do webinars and all these different things, of course, it's a way to talk about what you do. But that's not the only reason you do this stuff. For, for a good number of years, well, first of all, you're an ACFRE. So for people who don't know what that is, you're one of what fewer than 150 or so 
of yeah. these people um, who are advanced uh, CFRE holders, um, and which takes quite a bit of work right there. But also you've been um, a voice. You've been out there utilizing video and other things, not just to talk about your business, but to talk about the field and philanthropy for a long time with AFP and others. So there's a certain, there, there's something that must be driving you to do those things because you don't need to do them. So what what's the driver for you as you look forward? Not about just the business, but for you as a person, as you think about yeah. the kinds of things that you want to imagine as you right. move forward in your career for your contribution to the field. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I think, not that I think about this regularly, but it is, I hope, going to be part of my legacy that I've really contributed to the field and provided so much free content. I mean, that has been my philosophy for more than a decade uh, in whatever work I'm doing, but certainly at the Capital Campaign Toolkit, we're absolutely um, providing so much free content on a weekly basis because we really feel that um, it's an obligation or an opportunity, both, I guess, an obligation and an opportunity to give back to a field that means so much to us and um, to me personally, I should speak for myself, but um, I think, you know, the, the field has given me such, so many friendships, so many colleagues, so many opportunities that it's only right that I give back um, in the form, as you said, of speaking, writing, training, teaching, um, some of which, I do for paid, but much of which I do for free. The Philanthropy Masterminds podcast is underwritten by DonorSearch, the world leader in donor intelligence solutions. Our producer is Jack Frost. Our theme music is Be My Remedy, composed and performed by House of Say. You can subscribe to the Philanthropy Masterminds podcast on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And you can find blogs, webcasts, and CFRE accredited webinars with our featured masterminds at DonorSearch.net or check the show notes and descriptions.